this is Chop Shock Economics. I am Death, and these are my co-hosts. Dr. Spider. And Miss Silver. And we are interviewing Farah, an activist from Southern California, uh, from Los Angeles, but living in San Diego, who has a background in philosophy uh, on the current state of the United States and what we expect to see in the future. So uh, say hello to Farah. Um, hi. Um, hi, everyone. Um, I mean, it's interesting you say that I have a background on philosophy. I just check out a lot of books and talk about things. And when I name drop someone, everyone just looks at me like I'm speaking a foreign language. So, I mean, I guess that's an indication of a background in philosophy. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of people who are self-educated in philosophy and other topics, like myself included. Like, I don't necessarily think that you need to ha go through the whole, like, academic slog of university to get a certification and then have to go through all of the, um, like, writing stuff that's mm -hmm. involved that's involved and all the politicking that's involved in order to be seen as a legitimate philosopher. Um, not to mention that the entire uh, system can be very gatekeeping. But anyways, uh, uh, that is besides the point. But anyhow, um, so Farah, can you introduce yourself? Well, I do come originally from Los Angeles, but actually, in, um, in actuality, my hometown is Compton. I was born in a hospital in Gardena, but I've lived in Compton for about two decades. Um, been through school there, mostly. Then, after Santa Monica College, I had some personal life changes. I walked up with the support of my social network at the time, along with my late grandmother, to another place. Then I moved down here to San Diego with the help of my late grandmother and my dad. It was through vocational training at Job Corps that I um, began to embrace myself as a trans person, um, specifically as a trans woman, after seeing another out trans woman live in the dorm that I was in. We still had to live in a male-assigned dorm, of course. And from there, for my own personal awakening, plus like the support of the local um, LGBT community here in San Diego, I've been a bit more involved in activism and then organizing, working with different socialist parties, but also mainly with coalitions and a wider LGBT community. And on the side, I try to survive. I try to do like different jobs from time to time. Uh, I'm a sex worker. I write up my thoughts on media a lot. I'm also a cinephile to a degree. I haven't been in a theater for about a year now. Has it been a year now? <laughs> so that's my introduction. So, uh, can you tell me what the history of of like the of the movement and, and different movements in San Diego has looked like while you've been here? Well, one thing that struck me when coming down to San Diego is that 
there is apparently a lot of LGBT history that I just did not know about. Typically, we think about LGBT like movements and history. We think San Francisco, and to a lesser extent, Los Angeles. I didn't know San Diego. What was it being a military town? Would also have its very own side of gay history, including some like historical acts of solidarity. For example, that one bar strike that occurred and was organized in conjunction with crossdressers and lesbians because to protest discrimination, um, anti-homophobic discrimination at bars at the time. And that was more or less a start of the seed, seeds of the gay bar scene here in San Diego, which you can say a lot about. It's not perfect, but here... Um, I think that's one thing that struck me about it. I think another thing that struck me is um, the history of organizing and immigration. One, um, I remember first I arrived here in a bus from Los Angeles to my vocational school, and one of the first things that struck me was Chicano Park. Like, just the entirety of Chicano Park with its murals, um, commemorating different... Um, la- Latino organizers, even Che Guevara and Fidel Castro on the mural, which told me a lot about that. Again, I was just not told about this, and I kind of took for granted that, like, you know, Southern California was, like, this very big, um, diverse area for Black and Latino people. But the radicalism had to be something that more or less talked about under the table, not, like, out front, like what I saw in Chicago Park. So that was another thing that struck me, was like, with its proximity to the border, just how much more louder some of these voices are, and have to be, considering the history of the border. And how did that compare and contrast to your experiences in Los Angeles? Like, and the history there? So like in Los Angeles, so... One thing I one thing I knew about ever since I was a kid was the Watts um, riots that happened way before my time, and then after that the Rodney King riots, which happened before I was even cognizant of the fact. So to me, it felt like I was just living in a post, almost in a post-apocalyptic kind of world in a sense, where like everything I'm just around after the big fall or whatever. And the legacy of policing kind of, like, led credence to this, like, this weird relationship between, at the time, this idea of black nationalism that grappled between the radical roots and this idea of respectability of black people owning their own businesses, where you could literally go to a theater in Crenshaw, like, at the time, the Magic Johnson Theater in Crenshaw was actually the Magic Johnson Theater. And it was there that I got my first idea of Pan-Africanism by way of the Pan-African Film Festival, which is usually held annually. I, I'm not sure if it's still being held, but and it hasn't been held at that particular theater since its name change. But it was there where it was like a mix of like both a kind of or, ornamental kind of like wearing of history on our sleeves and trying to embody it. But actually articulating it, you know, post the Black Panthers, post fall of the USSR, that was a completely different story. 
And so my impression of being black and proud was one where we had to more or less stand on our own or with each other. And obviously there are complications there. Obviously there isn't like this monolithic thing, you know, struggles of black LGBT people for one, struggles of black disabled people for one. Which I call myself, I call myself both of those things. But it took me a while to actually be able to articulate that until I walked away from that community that I took for granted into being in San Diego, where more often than not, I find myself being the one black voice in the room. What has the experience been like? Is I mean, like, I grew up in San Diego and know about, like, how it's, like, this is, like, a pretty intensely conservative part of California, like, compared to the rest of the state. Um, how have, like, what's been going on since, basically, like, George, George Floyd's execution in all of this kind of, like, basically, like, you call mass uprising? Because, like, we're, we've heard a lot of stuff about, like, like, stuff comes up a lot in the news from, like, um, particularly Los Angeles, um, and some other places, but San Diego hasn't popped up as much. Like, what's been going on in the movement there since then? There actually has been a lot of movement. So while I think one can say that the black community is smaller in San Diego compared to Los Angeles, that hasn't meant that there isn't a lot of noise being made. The trick is being able to be seen. Um, it, so the, so. There have been local organizing events. There have been marches. There was a march that happened around two and a half weeks ago where a bunch of people marched on foot from downtown through North Park. And like to give some people some familiarity, so like downtown um, bustling area. No, not really a bustling area. San Diego's downtown is kind of mostly dead. It's like but, a theme park. God, it is like a theme park. No, see, okay, well, the thing about that is the description of downtown San Diego as a theme park, that feels almost like an insult to the theme parks. Because, like, <laughs> there's this one mall that has been around apparently since the 80s that at the time was, like, the apex of the strip mall design at the time. And it's now, like, dead. Like, completely dead. Like, they try to build, like, an outdoor theater there. They try to have a few, like, expensive um, restaurants around that area. Even have Starbucks outlined outside of it. I'm pretty sure if I went down there now, that Starbucks is literally the only thing about that mall that's dead. Uh, that's alive. Everything else is just, like, abandoned. Um, so that's downtown. North Park's a little bit more lively, you know. With his own history of like being a place for sex workers and mar- and marginalized people, that has now gone through his own phase of gentrification, a phase that pretty much started the moment I moved in and moved here, and so now it has like a it has like a small community center, which to be fair probably was there before the gentrification, plus like a thrift shop that has since closed, but now it's mostly about new ha- new housing complexes. So, um, a walk from downtown to North Park, and that particular kind of trail attracted a whole bunch of people from different backgrounds. But it was a largely um, community-led 
working class led、um, march. So that's like one example of what has happened. Another another thing that happened about also around the same time was a car caravan led by Black Lives Matter San Diego and March for Black Women San Diego. I myself was personally invited by members by a member to try to help with coordination, but also with security. I think there might be another reason why it hasn't made that big of a splash as Los Angeles has, because with such a with such such smaller community by comparison, we have to be careful about you know who we work with. We have to be careful not to just blast ourselves out there, because we've seen like what was. Alongo, Alfred Alongo,、um, killing by the police, and along with other acts of police violence, we see the consequences of retaliation. And so, with that in our mind, plus like you know, us being decent human beings and not wanting to endanger other people, is why we are kind of hush hush about it at the beginning, and then towards the very end, we seem to spring out out of nowhere when. No, it wasn't out of nowhere. We're just coordinating ourselves,、um, more or less covertly, more or less through a whisper network.、Hmm. Um, what、well, what would you say has been like, along with you know that like San Diego. Is itself sort of like as you said, like it's a smaller community than LA, as well as being like a bit of a like sprawling mess as far as like its layout as a city.、Um, like what what have been like some of the biggest obstacles to effective organizing? I think one、um, one obstacle has been you know a natural grappling with the history beyond just aesthetics. I used the Chicago Park example just to you know just to. Um, give some sort of contrast. There can be a conflict sometimes between like actually trying to really wrestle with and work with these kinds of struggles that are more or less founded in identity politics versus a more idealized, in my view, but others would say more disciplined point of view, where it's more about like trying to、um, emphasize the economic structure of it, and oftentimes and. Granted, to be fair, the organizations that I work with, it's not quite that outwardly dismissive. But every time we try to communicate to the outside, you know, through like Twitter hot takes or whatever, there's this weird tendency to try to underplay the fact that a lot of the oppression that's happened here has been an outgrowth of restructuring and oppression based on the color of one's skin, on biopolitics essentially, and. You know, when no, the moment you even try to even try to address that kind of thing, I can almost feel the way that pe- people try to bristle against that kind, of, bristle against that. You know, as if bringing up the fact that the border wall was made in response to the fear of a brown planet or a black planet, for instance, is somehow, you know, displacing. The economic factors. No, they're all interlinked, and you know, again, to be fair, I do work with people who do seem to get that. You know, no one's tell, no one's like quoting fucking Adolf Reed at my face while I try to tell people, hey, here's how we're gonna do this, or I'm trying to give suggestions. 
But I think that kind of tension is there. And so, like, in the wake of the 2016 presidential election, there's been a lot of, like, um, interrogation of the idea of identity politics that in some minds is completely divorced from what Kimberly Crenshaw tried to talk about, is divorced from what the Comedy River Collective tried to talk about, and is even divorced from the criticisms made by actual black organizers. It's instead, you know, it's instead something drawn from Jacobin, something drawn, again, from a selective reading of Adolf Reed. Not the actual living reality that we're living with, right? living reality that we're working with right now. So uh, for our viewers who are less grounded in a philosophical background, can you speak to what exactly biopolitics are um, and how they connect with um, white supremacy and its effects on black and brown people throughout the U.S. and the rest of the world? And can you get into the background of the Crenshaw River Collective, um, the, the Columbia River Collective, and Kimberly Crenshaw? So, biopolitics is broadly um, an enforcement of who gets to live and who gets to die, but that's the most broad application of that. There are many different kinds of um, ways in which that's enforced. So, biopolitics is something that's usually attributed to, like, Michel Foucault, who coined that term while also observing like the histories of the histories of prisons, um, histories of medicalization. Now, there have been more since Foucault, so particularly in Mamembe's work that tries to go more or less pose the question of whether Foucault's conception about biopolitics is even enough to cover the broad scope of colonization, the history of colonization among what's currently happening in Palestine and Israel. And so Mamembe's perspective is one that, you know, takes from um, the French philosophers and tries to connect them to actual like actual like application as such, like um, apartheid era South Africa, where black men and women were made to live in separate quarters out of a fear by white settlers that them working together would undermine the settler um, state. Or in the case of Palestine, you know, applications of guerrilla warfare and surveillance onto Palestinians, where it's not even just drone warfare or even just missiles being shot at people, but even things like rocks being thrown from over the wall or bulldozers being driven through roads and neighborhoods, basically a destruction of Palestinian roads, a disruption of a way of trying to travel one's own space. So Mamembe carries forth that idea to much more contemporary and, in my view, much more comprehensive grounds. As for Kimberly Crenshaw and the Kamehameha River Collective, I can only say that I've I'm still going through them myself. Um, I am caught between having my time occupied with organizing and having to actually read things. And it's thanks to my girlfriend running a reading group that I'm even in contact with these texts and I'm able to try to connect these things. So I can say that with Kimberly Crenshaw's conception of intersectionality that was made in conjunction with 
um, witnessing the trial of one of the of Thomas Clarence, particularly when Thomas Clarence was um, put on trial, or one of his victims, a black woman, was put on trial for sexual harassment and assault. And Kimberly Crenshaw witnessed a split in the black community of sorts, where on one hand, some people were like, oh, Thomas Clarence might be the first black civil um, Supreme Court person. This must be a plot to try to undermine what might be a grand achievement. And then the, te- and then the tension of black women within the community who have to go through years of trying to speak their truth about patriarchy, about equality, about um, being suppressed, which some draw that from directly from the Comedy River Collective and even Alice Walker. Others, they just draw it from the more contemporary circumstances. And so I think connecting that to the Comedy River Collective, the Comedy River Collective's conception of identity politics was made in response to the failings of what was then the second wave in America, where a lot of it was led by white middle-class women, but left out a variety of different experiences. Like, the Comedy River Collective was made as a response to that kind of thing. You know, understanding that one's pod, understanding that, well, if one's, that the personal is political, then why is it that black women aren't allowed to speak up about these kind of things? Why is it that we have to be at the mercy of organizations like now National Organization of Women and Red Stockings and other white-led orgs to be even to even try to even be mentioned. And that in itself is a continuation of what I see as a historical struggle for black women to be recognized. You know, IDB Wells trying to march with white suffragettes and the right to vote and with the and with the very structure of slavery itself, which Angela Davis would then try to deconstruct and break down years later. And how does Angela Davis uh, deconstruct and break that down? So there's a work that Angela Davis... um, Allow me to look it up right quick. I'm sorry, because I I, I (laughs) can't... No worries. The reason why I have to look it up because I want to make sure I got the... Um, title of it correct but essentially what Angela David is doing with this is she is more or less quoting um, taking Karl Marx's perspectives on like labor but also like using that kind of framework to look at the um, the role of the black woman in slavery in fact that's actually the literal title the black woman's role in the community of slaves and what she was doing was she was trying to respond to a myth of the black matriarchy, where or this idea that black women were not victimized during the role of slavery, that all the victimization fell upon black men much more than it did black women. And Angela Davis basically responds and says that this is not the case. What she points out in this work is that and this is like more like a paraphrasing of uh, one very iconic quote that a black woman is put in a double jeopardy of sorts where they're elevated based on this idea that because they're a black that they are uniquely you know made for pain for labor you know they're they're put in a pedestal of sorts 
in regards to their strengths, but that pedestal turns out to be an option block. So you're both held up, but aren't compensated. You're, we're both gendered, but also degendered of sorts. And my personal interpretation of this is that this problematizes this idea of womanhood, or that this idea that black women, as we call them, have ever actually been able to neatly fit into womanhood. When we think of womanhood, we think about, you know, we think about um, childbirth, we think about, you know, ovaries and other things like that. But in slavery, there's a hybrid exploitation of that kind of role, where more or less the very family structure as we know it was predicated on the slave. Like, we think of the family structure in America as being like this normal thing, but it was a norm. It was made normal in the instance of reproduction, reproduction for labor, and that's where the and that's what the black woman's role was. At the same time, the black woman didn't embrace this kind of role. Far from it. And in the book proper, Angela Davis tried to re- recount like different instances of resistance and the brutal oppressions that have been granted as a result of that. So black women did not meekly accept these kinds of roles or even prosper from it, contrary to the narrative at the time, and unfortunately a narrative that persists in some circles today, at least online. So I think that struck out to me because um, Angela Davis I heard about for a long time, primarily for her contributions as a Black Panther alongside Asaj Shakur before Shakur had to be exiled. But reading Angela Davis and actually posing these kinds of problems with ideas of womanhood, it's like, well, first of all, why aren't more people talking about this? Because as a black trans woman, I had a very long, for a very long time, I struggled with my own gender, with like being able to be myself, of feeling like I was assigned in this particular kind of body. And granted, Angela Davis doesn't speak as much on a trans question as Julia Serrano has, but I think the fact that slavery and colonization is something that's affected all black people to varying degrees around the world, I think it's a very crucial part in my in my opinion. So uh, to get back to earlier what we you were talking about, um, how would you say that the current uh, conception of, or misconception would be more accurate to say, of identity politics that a lot of white Mar- Marxists contrast, that Mar- white Marxists ha- have, how would you say that contrasts with its original formation? And what do you think are the steps that are needed in order to address this misconception? I mean, the thing is that, like, I think... Well, to probably answer that, I wonder if the idea of identity politics was ever really pure in the first place. Identity politics, as conceived by the by the River Collective, was more or less made in as a reaction to that kind of thing. It's not like a, it's not like a platonic ideal where we can say, "Oh, here's the fall," or rather, "Here's how it was conceived," and all these people have now sullied it and it's now bad now or we need to try to get things back up again. I'm not I struggle with wondering if that's exactly the case. At the same time, having said that there have been some particularly egregious like 
um, particularly egregious example of paternal denied theme from white Marxists, where, you know, we point they point to the example of the more liberal or conservative conception of identity politics, where it's more or less a a numbers game or a checkbox game, or hey, this person is black and does this, therefore this composition kind of is okay, or hey, we have a black president, things are okay now, or hey, we have Candace Owens, so shut up about Black Lives Matter and police violence. You know, people point to that as an example of identity politics being this intellectually bankrupt kind of thing. And um, therefore saying that, you know, one has to be a, a... to try to counter the accusation of being class reductionist, saying that we're race reductionists, or in some really egregious cases, some extremely online people talking at black people as if we're literal Nazis and using race science to talk about black problems. No, that's not the case. Um, so I think I think the main problem I could point to white Marx in regards to white Marxist's idea of a, almost sort of paternalism, which sounds very simple, but ultimately that's kind of like how it um, plays out. And it's not just contemporary, it's like a historical kind of thing. The Communist Party USA, for instance, there is a huge struggle within the black contingent of that, of that large party, of talking about the black nation question, which the idea of black people constituting a nation within themselves, within a colonized nation, and how exactly to address that kind of thing. And famously, CLR James famously had to speak out to a, this white-led organization to basically say, you know, there's a way which you're talking about this kind of question that more or less seems dismissive at best or naive at, um, dismissive at best. And C.R. James basically tried to call the party to account before being essentially exiled from the party for, to say that, you know, there's a way to engage with the black populace, with the, with the black populace, a populace that has been famously excluded from the idea of being a proletariat, the idea of being like a working class person, you know, with the history of discrimination against black people by white unions, and the even the history of historical failures of the white left around the time of the Civil War, where, you know, um, people, the white leftists incorrectly thought that slaves were more or less also an obstacle that they had to face alongside the slavers, that black slaves were a part of the race to the bottom of labor and so had to be something to also fight against which a weird kind of like perspective that what W.B. Du Bois had to try to speak on and which like spoke to historically a way which black people had to try to organize for ourselves because in some ways we both embody you know Marxist conceptions of you know labor of labor power but we're also oddly made invisible. We made invisible. It's like we don't exist. Or there's a very, very um, selective viewpoint of what labor actually is that ends up leaving out a lot of work of sharecroppers, of of black of black women having to be nurses, house nurses, and so on. So I, I do realize this is probably a very big question. But from your conception, what exactly is labor? Well, um, 
that is a big question actually but um i mean because there's multiple kinds of it like so people think of labor as being something like the factory worker idea of labor you know if you work at a car factory people think that's labor some people are even willing to grant that a person who works in who a person who works at walmart is a worker but i think we fail that's where a lot of people stop because people think the idea that if we have the most visible ideas of work the most acceptable ideas of work that is in the in the factory or the local store that that's where we need to fight at but as i said before like you know with slavery being what it is, being such a pervasive part of America, of America founding, and which still carries on today, there are other forms of labor that were are not accounted for. There's sexual labor, there's emotional labor. You know, black women being the ones who actually did the cooking, unlike the white slave people. Like southern cooking is black cooking. We have to, we have to understand that, but. There's also, um, there's also the um, labor that comes within the home. Now, l labor within the home is a different topic in and of itself. So Angela Davis speaks about one particular part of it as being like a outgrowth, something affected by slavery. And when it comes to housework, other people like. Um, other people like Federici had to be one to try to give a more um, detailed and also organizational point of view on on housework as a form of labor, on womanhood itself being shaped by labor that is often made invisible by this idea that, oh, it's just normal. It's just women have to be this way or this kind of work is made for black people or immigrants or brown or, or even indigenous peoples. So I think those are the kinds of labor that we tend to dismiss them or we tend to not talk about it or think that it's too awkward to talk about because even today a lot of the white left conception of the workforce is one that you punch in for. But there's much more pervasive than that. It has to be much more pervasive than that because a lot of what we think of in America as being normal living is like affordable living, even cheap living that we often take for granted. Not even I'm able to escape this kind of thing. What with the food that I buy, the technology that I use, even the books that have been bound in which I have my desk right now. Hmm. So... What do you think the struggle for labor looks like in the U in the United States right now? And how do you think, in your uh, conception, in your view, how do you think it it should move forward? Well, I can say that I'm seeing people speak up for themselves, even when other people try to scream them down, like the Red Umbrella co Collective for once, and sex workers having their own voice and talk about what they've gone through. Um, um, what what they've gone through online, um, online communities where if they're not welcome traditionally in typical leftist spaces, then we can at least make a blog about it. Just simply make a simple vent blog about it and then talk about your problem from there. And then it collects 
it gets more attention, more people try to pitch in, and then people recognize there's a problem, which is, you know, that's how people have been doing it for a very long time. Arguably, arguably since even before the Paris Commune, where people have to try to bridge the gap between their own subjectivity or, this, or their idea of subjectivity versus the contradictions of not having their subjectivity be affirmed of being repressed or regulated. So I think it's just more, I'm seeing that it's happening. The reason why these uprisings can seem very spontaneous at the surface is because people are not seeing the fact that people have been having a conversation for a very long time. It's just a matter of like finding the right kind of tactics to really act upon them. So I think that's how the movement is going to go forward. Um, now there are problems, there can be problems, you know. I said before about the limitations of identity politics is just simply saying, well, if a person of this category is doing a kind of thing, that makes that kind of thing right or even good. Um, like I said before, black people are not a monolith. We don't agree that, you know, everyone needs to have a gun. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, sorry. So to go back a little bit, I can say that, you know, we talked a little bit about the limitations of identity politics, where, like, you know, this idea that identity politics is simply a matter of, like, embodying a category. Um, embodying a category and then doing its thing, and then that thing being either good or bad based on you yourself, the subject, doing that kind of thing. And there are limitations to that, you know. Not, like, you know, not everything that people within our black community do is either the right thing or even exactly is correct. Angela Davis spoke very recently about how there are some black people that she does not want to work with. And I felt that, honestly. Like, you know, not all of us are going to be um, having a gun. Not all of us is going to have, like, you know, um, tactics or have this very, like, chismo-based idea of revolution of saviorism. Um, but I think that, you know, simply letting people have the conversations on their very own terms and then meeting them where they're at is the most basic thing that I can say is how we can try and move forward. Because more often than not, we find ourselves very caught up in the very, um, very almost idealistic perspectives of the working class person. You know, ascribing an almost kind of like moral kind of a moral kind of judgment on a person being a proletariat without reckoning with the fact that like you know a person can be poor a white person can be poor but you know they can still aspire to you know what trump has they can still work with the kkk they have worked with the kkk like um so i think simply meeting people where they're at while they're having these conversations you know without condescension and without judgment, at least not initially, not unless there are like actual ethical and um, tactical concerns will be a way of dealing with it. Um, what, like, and thinking of like how that connects to where we are in the present moment, um, what further impact do you think there's been on like having these conversations and getting people organizing effectively of 
how like past struggles like say the civil rights movement is a particularly common example of that's used for like creating the whole like good protester bad protester narrative um or like say like presentations of the labor movement for example um like what impact do you think that's had on is having rather on how people are organizing now from what you're seeing well, I mean, first thing first, I have to recommend the fact that the popular picture of the civil rights movement is very incomplete. Like, you know, people just think, hey, um, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, they both had some disagreements, they both did some marches, both of them got shot, the end. Like, that's, <laughs> that's literally all that I was taught for a very long time. Like, even in... <laughs> like... Yeah, yeah, and like, and that Republican MLK, because like you know that you know first of all that patents this idea. That's the version like, we got. First of all, the civil rights movement is everyone being on the same page, doing the exact same thing at the exact same time. A narrative that has more or less has been gradually, you know, contested, you know, in the aftermath of um, Martin Luther King's um, assassination and riots that happened, in an attempt to try to put Martin Luther King's life to the big screen. Uh, biographies. There was even a graphic novel that I recall being pretty controversial because of the fact that it showed Martin Luther King as being a fallible person. You know, a person with ambitions and proclivities and flaws. Which was controversial because people sometimes have a, some people get nervous about that. People think that, oh, well, if we reveal these people as being human, that might undermine these things. They might undermine the good image, and it's the good image of these movements that we need. And I'm going to say that, no, we've persisted in spite of the images, you know. Sometimes not even all on the same page, sometimes even on the same page. While Martin Luther King was the face of the movement, um, it was Bayard Rustin who gave early concept um, contributions by giving logistical, like, tactics telling people where in the march, how to pull, when to go forward, when to pull back, and so on. And you can say what you will about Bayard Rustin in his later years, what with him accepting an, an award from Ronald Reagan and, you know, his public comments in the civil rights activist community. But, you know, you know that doesn't mean we can erase the fact that a march needs to have someone tell you where the fuck to go. You know, tell people... Hey, which intersection do we want to stop at? When do we want to sit here and have a speech or something? Or here's where we can do this thing. And the television cameras will have to take pictures of this. Of like, show all these awful ads. Like, you know, there's a lot of tactics. It's not just simple sentiment. On the other side of that, there's Ella James. Who like, organized the sit-ins. That, the diner sit-ins that you probably have heard about. And Ella James came from a perspective of where simply occupying a space and trying to stay put while also bringing attention can put oneself at risk, but it can also bring attention. But also Ella James came forth with the idea of the sit-in in response to the idea of the messianic leader, of the black leader. Ella James wanted to try to make something that's a little bit more horizontal, where we're not so reliant on leaders, where... It can be a person doing a deed, working with other people, as opposed to waiting for someone to tell them from above what to do. And I think it's like 
us forgetting about that kind of thing does the, is what makes the civil rights conception, the popular conception of the civil rights movement, such a disingenuous way to view things. To say nothing of the fact that there are multiple other movements happening right now. What was what's happening in Brazil even before the pandemic hit Brazil and it's killing millions, killing people. I mean, I'm sad to say that there might be millions, if not hundreds of thousands of people that may be dead by the time this pandemic is contained. But even before that happened and the uprising happened in response to that, Brazilians were organizing on behalf of Marianne Franco, who was assassinated by, you know, people who are arguably working with Bolsonaro, you know, before Bolsonaro was elected in very dubious circumstances, along with the legacies of the Haitian, Jamaican, and, and Caribbean movements. So I think I like to try to tackle the civil rights question by saying, you know, let's dislodge this idea that there's any one kind of person or figure that can ever embody the entire thing. That's just simply not true. And try looking on the outside of things instead. So uh, what does abolition mean to you? And what does a world beyond the carceral system look like? Abolition to me just simply means, you know... What does abolition um, mean to you? And what does a world beyond the carceral system system look like? like? that's That's what it has to me at this point. Like, now, I have to say that I'm borrowing this from a friend who have all been talking to about these kinds of things, with my own struggles in the organizing spaces and everything. We have to, when we think about abolition, we have to also think about where it's going to end up. We have to somehow, to borrow from my girlfriend, when she speaks about, you know, socialist movements and communism, you know, we have to look beyond the horizon. When people think of abolition, we think of simply like, you know, dismantling the police. But... I think what we're going to put in this place is an interesting question. Now, there have been many different alternatives, like restorative justice, which I have my own issues with restorative justice, at least the way that people talk about it. There was one particular article written by a person who used to work for Commune magazine, who, in more in their own West, they wrote a blog post on Medium that is like a combination of both a confessional, but also like a a, a call to action of sorts for an idea of restorative justice, where it's about like how the abuser and the survivor can both meet face to face. There's this idea where justice has to be dealt with by an outside party, where usually an abuser is not centered. I mean, usually the survivor is not centered in this kind of process. You know, we should simply call the cops or we get some sort of, like, even some sort of community event where we should basically escort a person out of the space. And this this one particular popular idea of a story of justice where it's more like a conversation between the person who... Um, the person who did the wrong thing and the person who hasn't hurt by it. And... I have to say that while I can understand why people will try to come to that particular kind of idea, and sorry if this sounds a little bit frank or harsh, it reminds me way too much of what I experienced growing up as a Jehovah's Witness, where a very tight-knit community of sorts, this almost panopticon of like people watching you, of community accountability, but like 
is the community really working on your behalf just because you have to be a part of it? Or is it working against you? Is it trying to corral things or keep things in place for the sake of its own self-preservation and reproduction? And I think the story of justice hits that kind of part for me where, okay, so say we are in a world where both the survivor and the abuser have this particular kind of conversation. What do we do in circumstances where the community itself, you know, outside of these car- this carceral system, doesn't do good by members of this community? What do we do in circumstances where a community member finds themselves marginalized despite being a part of it because they're not in a higher pecking order, so to speak? And I'm not going to dismiss it entirely because maybe this is an open question. This is an open question that apparently has persisted since the 1970s. At the same time, when I say the 1970s, as one friend of mine talked about, there was a conception of a story of justice within the legal system as being more or less like a, a being more or less a system of management, something like a pressure valve of sorts. I know that sounds like very harsh, if not cynical. But I can't help but have those kinds of questions in my mind when people try to propose alternatives. And so that's that's one particular thing that I can say a lot about. And just to give like one particular kind of direct quotation, because I don't wanna like I don't wanna like misrepresent anyone. So give me a few moments to look this up. In fact we could probably we could probably move on to the next question if you like, because I've written about this in other places, even in not safe for work places, because, hey, even if I'm in a place where people have fun, I'm the one person who has to be serious and, you know, call me an emotional terrorist or a weird person all your life. Sometimes when something like this hits me as a survivor, as a community, as a black person, LGBT person, I just have to speak on it. So there's, um... So this one article is called that I'm referring to in response to Comedy Magazine's recent like breakdown. It's called Community Accountability Means We All Play a Role. And that's one that I had to that I read in which I was responding to more or less my own personal response to people within my community who, you know, comprise the other survivors of other people. So that's who that's what I'm responding to. And I want to cite that directly just to be charitable because, you know, I may have my own criticisms. I want to say right now that with my own answer in this um, recording that, like, this is an evolving question and I'm not going to say that I know everything. Being an organizer means that, you know, you're caught in this space between doing the reading and trying to apply it. You know, to quote the famous maxim of, like, philosophy, um, you know, trying to change the world with philosophy as opposed to philosophy being a very disconnected point of view of the world, where we're trying to see the world as it is, whereas with Marxism, we're trying to see what it could be and trying to alter it in that kind of sense. So on that particular front, I want to say that with my own criticism of restorative justice, I do invite being corrected. I mean, I have to invite being corrected. Otherwise, what the fuck am I doing in organizing spaces? Um, with everything that's happening, particularly around, like, you know, uh, 
the like absolute explosion of Black Lives Matter, which according to one uh, recent study is far and away like the largest mass movement in American history at this point, like something like an estimated at least 15 million people have been out in the street assuming you know this being 2020 so like you know crossing our fingers here um conditions remain more or less where they're at right now what do you think is the likely like what do you think we're probably going to be seeing in like say the next through two or three months just to be safe front with the movement I honestly don't think that I can make that kind of statement. <laughs> I mean, I honestly don't think I can make that kind of um, thing. Like, I guess at the risk of being, um, I guess, I guess at the risk of being, you know, very presumptuous but also very egotistical. When Lenin was famously writing "State and Revolution," there's a part, there's a famous like cut-off part, and then there's a like an introduction that said as much that like Lenin would have finished "State and Revolution." were it not for the fact that he was busy trying to lead an actual revolution before he even finished it. I think it feels like I might be on the cusp of something like that. And I think this goes back to like what I was saying about the sensitivity which around which I had to announce, work with other organizers to announce our efforts on the ground. Because, you know, saying too much at this point would probably be both doing a disservice to what people are developing now. People who are probably much more active in smarter than I am but also it may end up being a mistake so I can't say with any honesty that I can make any earnest predictions what we can what what things are going to be like that also assumes that we even know everything there is to know about this so-called material conditions like it's a constant investigation it's a constant investigation and so I can't make any predictions I mean that's that's understandable. We we do tend to jump into a lot of that here, um, partly um, because we have an absolute I mean, yeah, ability I saw, to sure. make our predictions real here. Um, <laughs> yeah, we even had conversations. <laughs> we personally destroy the economy. Yeah. <laughs> every time we make, I mean, yeah. Every time we make a joke about what's gonna happen, it somehow yeah, comes like, through. And, and, and it's I always shit that's this. like at the time we're like, "There's no fucking way it's gonna get that bad." This is obviously a joke. This is obviously I mean, ridiculous. I mean, that's. I mean, that's a. I mean, that's come for the fact that capitalism is a shameless thing. Like, it's not like capitalism like this leaving, breathing person. It's not like fucking Dwarf Sidious, which is like, capture capitalism, throw it down the big hole, he explodes into thunder, there's peace again, until the, like, the next six or five fucking movies or something. It's not like that. So that's... <laughs> I mean, that's you mean we thing. can't do that with like, Jeff Bezos? Kind of goes into like what was saying. Darn, I was so hopeful. Like the civil rights movement into like one particular figurehead, so to speak. I think you may end up making the same kind of mistake with people like Jeff Bezos. So okay, we know what Jeff Bezos is. We know that he runs Amazon. We know what we we know what Forbes magazine says about him. We said that he's a trillionaire, but like 
what do we mean by that? Like, there's this one right-wing person who's like, oh, these stupid leftists, they just think that Jeff Bezos is walking around with, like, fucking trillion dollars in his pocket, and he can just, like, rob them and give it to people, and that's it. I'm not saying that. No one with any sense is saying that. <laughs> but I think there is a risk of running away with that popular narrative of that being exactly the case. What we need to look at is not one particular person. We need to look instead at the social structure that makes people like Jeff Bezos. There's going to be more Jeff Bezos down the line. You know, it might be fucking Grimes. It might be fucking who knows at this point. That's just how things are. There has been a newsletter, I believe, where the record number of billionaires is like 800 billionaires. And it's like, it's probably Forbes, but probably some other publications saying, hey, we have 800 billionaires, a new world record in the midst of like massive poverty. And so like, people, when they see popular articles like this, they try to engage in a sort of populism where like, you've probably seen it from even better people, like Ken, um, Ken Kepelstein. I'm sorry, I'm probably pronouncing his name. Let's call him Ken. Yes. Yeah, so Ken. He does these really great posts, right? You know, he's contrasting one particular headline with another headline or some or some graphic or whatever. And like, you know, in organizing spaces, people are like, oh, wow, that's great. You know, we're winning the meme war. And I'm like, no, stop. First of all, just stop. The meme war, I'm not going to say that the meme war does not exist. It's not the only fucking weapon we have at our disposal, guys. We have to also try to, like, actively do a real education with things. Maybe Twitter's not the best place to actually do education. I mean... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the big issue that people have is people talk about like these social platforms like Twitter and Facebook as this opportunity to bring people together and connect experiences and educate informed people. But we can't forget that these that the algorithms on these platforms mm-hmm. are explicitly designed to make people more emotional because that is what sells advertising on these platforms. And then, this is like mm-hmm. it's like a a specific social gravity that you have to reckon with. Yeah, and like a it, lot of people and a lot of people think that if they just simply sh- if they take over the gravity, if the, if they are the ones running this sort of gravity benevolently, that they're going to make everything go on again. At least that's like a traditional more simplified understanding of what Marxism actually is. We take over the state, we take over avenues of the state, then if we run things in a better way, maybe it might be better. But that's like both a disservice to like how things actually went, how things people try to carry out, both in the USSR and also in like African decolonization efforts. But also, yeah, like you're right, algorithms are indeed shaping, literally Mm -hmm. shaping how we're seeing things, you know. I guess that's like one thing Hideo Kojima was right about. <laughs> like, people being able to see what they can see, but also being guided along a certain type of line and not even being able to see that or even being cognizant of that kind of thing. And so when people try to seize upon this propaganda effort of social media, I want to say, okay, well, we're all inside right now, or at least those of us with sense are inside right now. There's nothing else for us to do. We can't do the traditional, like, more hardcore organizing, so we might as well try to work with our social media program. 
But I and caution people against like leaning against into it all the way, especially when, especially when speaking of Twitter, like if the history of many left spaces and indication, a lot of these efforts either die out, probably in part due to algorithms and restructuring of websites, or it turns out that these people are reactionaries who just happen to strike at the right moment in time. And I think even if, like, let's say hypothetically, uh, there is some sort of sense of you leftists win the meme war, I think we really have to worry about, like, whether, you know, we're winning a symbolic struggle versus winning a material struggle. Because, yeah, it's great if you're getting people to, you know, say all the right, like, leftist memes and, and everything, but what how is that actually addressing like the base of everything as it stands now and i think i think that comes i think that comes like in parcel with like this idea that people have of materialism as simply being what you see as opposed to like you know how we see things you know going back to my question about um answer about labor you know there are lots of things that are made invisible because to truly reckon with them would probably stir people's hearts to a certain degree. I mean, like, I said before about the limits, limits of sentiment, you know, we can show, like, very triggering footage of black people being killed in the streets all you want. That's not gonna move everyone. Some people will even see that as, like, something to celebrate. Like, I've been in dark parts of the internet. I know this. Literally everything is meme material, for better and for worse. And, and at some point, it just turns more into a spectacle about black pain than it turns into trying to uh, get people outraged in order to fight and organize. I mean, like, we've seen this before with, like, um, I remember during the Bush years. It's like people have forgotten about the aftermath of Abu Ghraib, or rather they only looked at Abu Ghraib in that famous picture of, like, the protest of the torturers posing with people at the Guantanamo Bay. And people have been outraged about it. There have even been fucking Law and Order episodes made about it that more or less said, okay, this is a bridge too far. What the fuck, Bush? But people move on. You know, probably not... I mean, part of it is probably not all due to maliciousness. But, you know, it could be that because there's like this the media demand and the fact that time moves on, the fact that there's so many other things that occupy the person's life, you know... When people ask the question of, oh, why weren't you mad about this years ago? I mean, we probably were. You probably just forgot about it. But more importantly, how are we going to remember this? But another question, why is it important that it be remembered? Like, who is being made the arbiter of this kind of public memory that, like, interrogates our relationship to to oppression? I think there's just, like, this one Twitter post that Poland made where... A good rule of thumb is that if you weren't mad about this thing five years ago, you shouldn't be mad about it, about it now. And then, like, one person quote tweeted and said, I will never grow. I will never, gr- I will never grow up. Or something like that. Like, that's a stupid position. But I think tying ourselves to social media meme warfare more or less kind of, like, ties ourselves in with that same kind of thing. You know? Another person also said it in a much more mean-spirited way, but probably not entirely incorrect. I think this one person said that 
Zoomer activism is coming in 2012, but every two months. <laughs> that's mean. That like that's scorching hot take, but that's what we're going to end up falling into if we just take the spectacle for granted. I mean, I do think a little mm. bit of it just comes down to crisis fatigue. You can you can only stay mad about something for so long. You can only have doom hanging over your head for so long before you you just run and out that's of demonstrably true. Yeah, the ability that's to give a fuck. Really, about really it. true. I'm not going to discount anyone's trauma and say, hey, you know, talk about the same fucked up thing time and time again. You know seeing the same fucked up thing time and time again. We've talked about the algorithms like intentionally doing that kind of thing because they're driven by engagement. But also driven by engagement, but also driven by neglect, yeah. if not like outright maliciousness. Because like we know that these sites are full of Nazis. It took fucking Unilever pulling advertising from Facebook to do these mass bannings yeah. of things like Origin or Critical and these other places. Like We've been near this thing for almost a decade now, but it took a major company basically voting with its dollars, pulling millions of dollars for these things to be pulled out. And even then, that doesn't necessarily solve the problem. You know, I myself go back and forth between whether deplatforming, how deplatforming helps, how much it can help, or if it does help. Yeah, sure, Milo, Yiannopoulos, or whoever the fuck, it's more or less a joke now, but like, <laughs> just the other day, there was someone who was like, hey guys, I'm gonna do an edgy interview with this guy, and, <laughs> yeah, hey, hey, hashtag, I'm gonna cancel myself before anyone else can, haha, and it's like, it got canceled anyway, so, what did you accomplish? <laughs> like, fuck, yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't... And part of it is... Um, and I, I guess at this point, there's part of me that just wants to ask the burning question, which is... <sighs> what... I'm seeing what we're seeing, really, and you know the the whole thesis that our show is basically built around at this point is that the economy is coming unglued in the background um, at a massive, almost impossible to comprehend scale. Um, mm -hmm. yeah and so it's like <sighs> how to put this my Right. 
I mean, that's, I mean, something has to give, like, uh, that's one thing I can say, that something absolutely has to give, and like, this is like, this is where I believe in an imperative for organizers, people who call themselves organizers, who try to actually come to these, come to these conversations that people are likely having amongst themselves in good faith, you know, one thing I want to tell organizers that I work with, that like, you know, we didn't we are just simply catching up to what people have been talking about for centuries. Like, we've been talking about black struggle for centuries. People have been talking about housing for, you know, centuries. Probably longer than that because, well, you know, ever since the cave got the cave, we need to have a place to stay. But why do we have these kinds of, like, exceptions? Why do we have to put housing behind, like, paywalls and making people have to earn three times their income. Like, why do we have to do these kind of things? Like, something absolutely has to give. And so, like, I think this is where I try to give organizers, or even individuals, people who are not in organizing spaces, that, you know, I don't think we should have to wait until things tip over for us to suddenly, like, try to swoop in and then say, tut-tut people and say that, hey, we need to, like, do things this particular kind of way, or else you're being adventurous. Which, like, you know, it's not entirely incorrect, you know. It's not entirely incorrect to be considered a people's safety. We can't just, like, march in and, you know, do these kinds of bad things without, like, consideration of who you're working with. And so, I think it's my... my, The only answer I can give to that, like, you know, we know what's going to happen. We know that Texas is having these evictions. California itself kind of like dodged a bullet there with Gavin Newsom all but all but granting, you know, an extension to eviction moratoriums, not to mention extensions of like Medi-Cal things. That's in California. And in some degree I'm lucky to be in California, but but I don't think I don't think that makes things any less urgent. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what kind of worries me. Um is go on. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, like, I mean, like, I think before I talked about this with my girlfriend, like, we were talking about the retail apocalypse. Like, myself and my partners, you know, and my friends, when we would walk through particular mall areas, you just see, it's just like, think in our minds, wow, so many of these places that we think would stay forever, fucking Sears going bankrupt. And basically the corpses of, like, different, like, retail stores looking like relics that we... Look at like the very things that we associate with the Soviet Union when we talk about collapsed empires. Like, oh, that will obviously never happen here. No, if anything, rot has been happening. It's just been with certain kinds of people and certain kinds of things that you prefer to not even think about or talk about or link to an idea of meritocracy or something like that. We're seeing... Or, people or quietly dying right in Compton. Like we're having a we're having a Flint situation in Compton right now. My hometown, people are people are having lead in their fucking water. Fuck. And activists from around Compton have been trying to get Gavin Newsom's attention on it. I haven't heard Gavin Newsom talk about it. I haven't heard other people talk about it. I had to learn about it at the beginning of fucking July. Like that hurts me. Because, like, you know, it's kind of like seeing a person that you love be gone, you know. You're not even having a chance to um, say goodbye. Not even having a chance to say any last thoughts to them. Or rather, you have, but you just didn't know it yet. It's a similar kind of feeling that I'm having with what's happening in Compton. It's not that Compton was ever, like, free of, like, issues of pollution or, like, poverty or anything of that kind of sort. But there are many different degrees of poverty. Which, you know, the very simplistic viewpoint of first world, second world, third world doesn't really even apply to or can't, or doesn't even see. You know, we think that just because everyone's in America that everyone's equally getting all these good things. No, you know, this kind of give credence to a black nationhood question if only because almost, almost equally black people um, are subjugated or made to live in squalor. And have to make do and squalor. Have to make our culture and squalor. The things that are tourist attractions in Louisiana, those things are built in our struggle. The things that we reference as a as a meme, like NWA. I mean, say what you will about Dr. Dre now. What what was that Apple money that he got and the recent and the divorce that he's going through? But like that was built out of something real shit. So. Yeah, the strut has been happening. It's been happening for a very long time. In yeah. rural and the ghetto. Yeah, I think it speaks to a misconception that many people have had in that when we talk about the first world, you know, especially in the United States, we often forget that it's not, that there's not some sort of simplistic binary between, um, between like the imperial center and the periphery i mean mm -hmm. the way that the united states is set up it's that a lot of areas are peripheries that you know benefit different centers within the united states right like, there's no simple binary here i mean like i mean like people are really to talk about like indigenous um, reservations you know we talk we talk about the navajo nation being devastated by the pandemic right now people are able to conceptualize it but people often conceptualize it in a viewpoint of history, as if it's like a relic of the past, as if like, you know, this is something, this is just an outgrowth of the past, but we still put it behind us. 
when it's still like a active like thing of what's happening now. And I granted I don't want to like say too much about that because there are plenty of like indigenous voices like in Canada and in America who are already speaking that have who have been speaking on this for a very long time. So I don't want to say too much about this. I will say that, you know, yeah, the simplistic binary that we have of, like, worlds is something that, like, you know, pops up in a lot of conversations, you know, conversations that conflates hypervisibility with a sort of form of privilege in the easy life, that, you know, conflates this focus of Ferguson with pushing out other struggles. And granted, you know, a lot of that does come to disingenuousness, if not outright black and anti-blackness, you know, you know, no, no, the struggle of Ferguson is not, you know, displacing Palestine, and it's not displaced what's happening in Jamaica, and it's not displaced what's happening in Brazil. I actively talk about these things in spaces all the time, personally speaking, and I'm sure there are more than a few Pan-Africanists, some of whom I've even worked with in my own local, in my own local organizing spaces, who talk about these things, who have to talk about these things. But I think that binary thinking comes with a sort of a scarcity kind of mindset where we think that because there's one kind of thing talking about it that we can't give our due to everyone else. And again, with the simplistic picture that we have the civil rights movement as more or less being monopolized by one particular yeah. kind of angle that pushes out everything as being either a diversion or a distraction. I think the binary thinking when it comes to thinking about worlds, I mean... It's insulting to people in the global south, for one. There are multitudes of people in the global south, you know. The global south, when we talk about, when we use such a term, it doesn't mean the same for Vietnam as it does for Brazil, as it does for um, Palestine. It doesn't even mean the same, even like Eastern European countries and former Soviet countries, you know. There's a lot to be said now about, like, say, Ukraine being out overrun by Nazis, if not outright run by Nazis. But, yeah, there is a way where you're right. This very binary point of view can get in the way of actual solidarity in action. Because, yeah, we, get and too, and because we get too preoccupied with trying to make everything line up one-to-one with what we've read. When that, that wasn't true even in Marxist time. And I think it speaks to the limitations of the politics of spectacle and visibility versus the politics of solidarity, hmm. where if uh, where like when we try to like reduce everything to in terms of social media, mm-hmm. we, you know we forget we forget that all that these struggles that we're seeing all across the world they're not disconnected from each other they are connected to each other and I mean I think that is that's a lesson that the American left really needs to emphasize is that these struggles that we see outside the United States, you know, are as deeply connected to what's happening here in the U.S. Like take, for example, um, how uh, the struggle, how, you know, black and brown struggles within the United States are connected with what's going on in Israel, Palestine. Uh, You have a lot of police departments that will go on to train in uh, Israel, in order to uh, uh, in order to like learn the techniques of surveillance and domination mm-hmm. that are you know that are learned uh, in the occupation of Palestine, mm-hmm. uh, 
and that it and that and like that there's a circulation of those techniques from Israel Palestine to the United States much in the same way that like that like um you know what we learn in like you know what activists and organizers learn in one part of the world you know when they connect with each other there can be a similar sort of circulation and i think when we reduce it to like visibility and that you know we either have to be t we have to be talking about this struggle or that struggle we forget that ultimately all of these struggles are connected and i mean it doesn't mean that, that there's an equal that doesn't mean that they're all exactly the same right but there are right. things to learn well yeah that speaks to yeah one thing about the israel point i want to bring up and i'm glad that you brought up brought up is that like you no know, if we're going to talk about the ways which you think are interconnected there is a way that we can be delicate about it you know if we're going to say that the police is trained at israel we can't then tumble that into weird anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about Israel literally running the country. No, that's not even how that fucking works. Like, do you know how much Thank money? You. Do you know how much the United States, how much money the United States has compared to literally everyone else? You know, on top of and on top of like where that money comes from and everything like that. So, yes, we should definitely, un definitely, like, you know, with a critical eye try to connect these kinds of different kinds of issues together. We can't just be single issue. Um, yeah, I think mm -hmm. I think one thing that people forget in regards to Israel is it's not a matter of Israel controlling the United States. It's right. an issue that it's a matter that the United States has a strong geopolitical and strategic interest within the Middle East. Right. Like ultimately like it's not that Israel controls the United States. It's that the United States uses Israel as a settler colony and or as and as a proxy in order to extend its influence all across the Middle East and parts of North Africa. Right. Yeah, and that also affects discourse as well. That also affects the way that we're even able to yeah. talk about these kind of things or even like even talk about these things. Now, like there are actual Jewish activists, Jewish Voice for Peace, work with the Palestinian youth movement, for instance. Like, people have, have been doing actual, like, good faith interrogation of these things for years, but mm -hmm. we don't see that. Um, if we if we are too attached to spectacle, we end up losing out a lot on these kinds of things, on these kinds of side conversations. And, you know, to try and go into, like, what I was trying to say earlier, I think one way to combat this overemphasis on spectacle. Mm -hmm. um, a friend of mine described it as like a politics of surreality where like Trump is literally quoting QAnon and other conspiracy theories and Boogaloo and other stuff like that. Like this politics of surreality where it's like, you know, just people putting stuff together to try to make some sort of thing. And it's a very tacky kind of thing. Not like the cool cyberpunk future that we thought villains might be. Like, say what you will about William Gibson his villains seem to have at least heard of the concept of aesthetics. Meanwhile, Boogaloo is using like a fucking 80s movie as a meme and is wearing Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack with that is what I'm trying to say. But like, if we try to focus on that way too long, I think there are ways that we can try to address this kind of thing that isn't just us trying to win a meme warfare. That's just, as can be as simple as simply trying to have a conversation with our own roommates with with a coworker, assuming that you're even at work right now, with like a friend. 
I'm not going to say that I was successful at like converting my former job at a call center yeah. and making everyone get unionized. But, you know, it was on my mind back when the movie Sorry to Bother You came out and people within my organization were telling me, giving me tips on how to organize. Some people have been able to do it. Some are members of unions. Others are, like myself, are not. Like, I'm at least with people who seem to understand that it's not that easy, that it's not a matter of laziness, that I'm unemployed or whatever. Like, but, you know, it's a hard com- it can be a hard conversation to have, but I think that's why we cannot, you know, we cannot um, let go of the micro and try to fight the macro. There's a lot that we can be doing in our local spaces right now that we often underestimate because it's not the thing that's on Los Angeles Times or New York, New York Times or Time Magazine or whatever. And I think trying to appeal to the sensibilities of these media institutions, yeah. like we're not, we have to understand that we're never going to, we're never going to win with the New York Times. We're never going to win with the Washington Post. We're never going to win with MSNBC. Right. We, we think that, you know, if, if we think with the, the politics of spectacle, that if we say the right things to the right people on the right platforms, then everything will be hunky-dory and and like people will come around and will win but these are institutions that are hostile to us okay like, so yeah that actually reminds me of something so i'm not going to give the name of the particular um event that i was at simply because like you know i'm still working with people now I'm not going to paint everyone with a broad brush or be involved in this thing as being all bad. I think it's just a matter of the spectacle in this case overwhelming everything to a point where I had the experience that I and another speaker had. But the long story short is that like I was invited to a local march. A march that was ultimately had thousands of people. I got to speak at a podium in front of thousands of people about my own perspective of a black trans woman. And another person came after me, a person who organizes a local movement here, you know, how to speak about her experiences as a black woman and the failures of the wider movement, how to grapple with that, of basically throwing black women under the bus, try to get, trying to um, stamp out any sort of authenticity, any sort of solidarity in the name of ultimately placating people. Here's the thing, though. Before she and I were able to give these kinds of speeches, there was a lot of delegation about what I was allowed to say, more or less. I wrote my own draft, my own speech. She also wrote her own draft, her own speech. And in both of our cases, we used very strong language. I even try to make a good point of trying to single out patriarchy, and the way that patriarchy, in a sense, tries to use tactics of transmisogyny to divide trans women from cis women from even non-binary people, or using the ideas of gender assignment as being essentially a way of marking people, marking people for death in some cases. The problem is that I had to cut some of that language, and the reason is, and I'll try to give a quote as I can, we have to use language to try to give people an in, but which I mean I can't be like too complicated, too you know, explicit about things. I have to instead try to emphasize a spirit of cooperation. And 
speaking of like what we're talking about trying to treat all problems equally and we're trying to do solidarity, there is this narrative that we have to try to prop up this idea of a false unity where if not everyone is in line, we might end up undoing all the good work that we might do. It's where this contention against identity politics come from. This idea that we're basically turning people into cliques and basically making people fight against each other over stupid things when we all could be fighting together. And I'm like, it's not that it's not that we can't get clicky. It's not that we can't get a little bitchy at each other and try to undercut each other. Sometimes it's because we are really angry about what another person has done. Other times it's just simple matter of trying to get some social capital or whatever. But that's where that becomes a boogeyman. That's where it becomes a sort of boogeyman try to, you know, censor real radical voices. I even try to write an essay about it. And lately I've become a bit too sad to even try to finish it because like, I pretty much said it all in that one paragraph of this rough draft of mine where I had to say that everything has to give in to what is the most general. What becomes the most general is what gets the most attention, but that's all you're going to get out of that. However radical a person might try to label that kind of general thing, it's, it's made almost by design, by the design of the spectacle itself, by the way that we try to funnel these kind of things to be not much more than just um, you witnessing a marginalized person that you claim to care for in the abstract speak their truth for at least like four or five minutes and then, well, fuck off. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And after I gave that speech, there was supposed to be a march, so a bunch of people started marching in the streets, and then I was left behind, and then I saw this one person in an adult human female t-shirt, like, walk up when literally then every place was empty, just an empty stage, and she took a selfie in that picture, and then walked away. Yeah. Oh my god. That that actually happened here, and um, oh. I've told multiple people about it. You know, when I was invited to a local university to lecture about trans misogyny, I gave that exact kind of um, anecdote, and I stand by it. All that is true. I mean, we've had hmm. some pretty... Yeah, we do. We, we have quite a bit of dead air in this. What? Okay, yeah. Yeah, um... I mean, I, yeah. I mean I've contributed to dead air myself by trying to look up citations. So, <laughs> that as well. Like and I said, my internet has not been the best. Let me guess, do you have Cox internet too? Uh, yeah. Uh, it's actually not Cox, it's AT&T, but I don't know why, but, like, it's just been having, like, so many issues lately. Oh. Like, trying to have conversations with people, it'll just, like, randomly drop out. Agent Pi fucks us again. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think, uh, what, uh, we'll probably can cut out this bit, but, uh, one question that I think would be a good way to end all this is... What worries you about this time that we're in, and what excites you about this time? 
I think what excites me is people looking for um people looking for simple easy answers that you can just meme your way into as opposed to actually working with flesh and blood people. Where we want to have this pure heroic idea of a worker that's not icky like a sex worker, that's not invisible or stupid or frivolous, that we consider them to be like say a fucking beauty salon person even. You know, where we just want to try to aim at one particular very specific idea of a worker or a person. And, you know, it may seem like a good strategic sense in theory, but that's in theory. And, you know, for theory to even be worth a damn, it has to take real things into account. Right now, there are a lot of people who are reading Marx, probably for the first time in their lives. I read a Communist Manifesto about a decade ago, when I was just a security guard, working in a VFX, uh, VFX studio in Los Angeles. I did that my own spare time in between reading, like, fucking comic books and graphic novels, but and also bits of, like, Ursula K. Gwynn, even. Like, you know, just me immersing myself in these kind of things as a curiosity. That's also, for better or for worse, how I came into Boudoulard and Darida. But I can't tell you a fucking thing about Darida. Please do not ask me about that. <laughs> that reminds me, that was my next question on the list. I joke, I joke. <laughs> yeah, um... But... So that's what I'm. That's what I'm afraid of. But what I'm. What I'm hopeful for is. Um, what I'm hopeful for is that people begin to like be, if not more flexible, then a little bit more compassionate. Like I think one of the hard things about organizing is like not wanting to treat it like a club, you know. We want to have clubs, we want to have places where we can feel like we can we belong. If you're that one weird person who has actually read Capital all the way through on yourself and you speak with other people within that kind of thing, well, you may think, hey, you have a bond there. You may have something that's cool. You may have, like, you may even have friendships. And that may not always be the case. I want to say that I don't think I'm the most agreeable person in whatever space that I'm in. I'm probably not the easiest person to talk to. I can be loud. I can be I can be overbearing, probably. I can be a bit obscure. But trying to work that out is like a, a worthwhile thing in and of itself. Maybe some people just won't get you, period. Maybe you're just repulsive enough. Or too repulsive or too... Even too clean sometimes. Like... I jump in between whether or not people see me as like a good pure feminine role would be doing no wrong or something that's dangerous. And I already know what it's connected to. I know about the racism and transmissibility thing. I can only do so much to try to account for that. At the same time, I feel that if I didn't even try to do anything at all, you know, what good can I contribute? What do I, what right do I have to speak? <sighs> um yeah that's so, pretty much the best i can say about is that. that it um yeah i think it's pretty much my answer it's just that like it's a developing question i can't say that i can make the best kind of predictions like your podcast has like I 
I'm both grateful but also jealous that I'm not cursed at that kind of knowledge that you folks have. We've been huffing fumes from the Oracle Cave. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I mean... Yeah. Yeah. Steering <laughs> too deeply into yeah, I mean, for, uh, the financial I mean, times. I mean I mean for better or for worse, I mean Not even once. Not even for once. All the bitching that I just did about New York New York Times or whatever. I'm not telling people to not read the news. Like, come on, you can't source all of your news from shit polls on Tumblr and Twitter forever. You gotta like look outside yourself. Like it's okay to look outside yourself. So keep doing that keep like learning from the outside things but like try to remember to like at least say hi to somebody mm-hmm. or at least like do the dishes to the house <laughs> so it was wonderful to have you on Farah. it was right. incredible to talk about all of this um, and have this conversation um Thank you. Um, anyhow, um, this is Chop Shop Economics. We do these things so you don't have to. Hi. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>